what I heard is that Pete Buttigieg has coronavirus. Oh, please. No, no, I heard this. I know it's it's a reported rumor, but it was reported by the AP and it was on the front page, so it's got to be true. Get that dude some corona extra. They wouldn't put it on the front page if it wasn't true. Yeah. So, good luck, Pete. R.I.P. We hardly knew you. We hope your firmware update, you know, solves that problem. Gets rid of that virus <laughs> for you. Install some McAfee or whatever. Installing McAfee would now mean, like, uh, going to Panama and, like, loading uh, a six-hour and, like, yelling at your girlfriend and killing your neighbor, right? That's... That's, what? That's right, what the crazy. F- yeah, the fuck are you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. McAfee yeah, John like, McAfee. John McAfee's fucking crazy. Yeah, that 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 shit's totally bizarre. He's like a self-made cult of personality uh, and has like a cult of like seven people. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's seven more than I have, you know. Can't can't knock it. I heard John McAfee and infected Pete were hanging out in the Bahamas. So, whoa. whoa. I wow. heard they were killing dogs together. Where I'm just saying. Where there's smoke, there's fire. So speaking of rumors, we are hashtag blessed today to be joined by Jeremy Antley. Hello. Hi, Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy's done a lot of really interesting work that um, probably when you start, when you picked this dissertation topic, did not know how relevant it would be. Or maybe you did and you just knew it before everyone else. But the the fact that um, you know, your dissertation is on uh, rumor in Russian peasants. The Russian peasantry rumor, right? Is that well? Uh, well, I'll I'll just correct you. Yeah. I, I did I yeah. did study Russian history for the wonderful fans out there. They do exist. Russian historians. I'm one of them. Uh, I yeah. I studied imperial history. I did like the period of the czars. If you if you like study history, they they put you in a period, and and I did czars because that's that was uh I was actually told that was a good career move in 2005 <laughs> at the time no seriously you went I, long on czars <laughs> yeah, so right, quick yeah. short story i like went to russia in 2005 and my advisor because i was going to go study russian I, I just started my graduate program and uh, my advisor was like set me up with a friend of hers that lived in st petersburg and so we met at this very like interesting bar and he was like well what do you want to study and i was like history and he was like okay but He's like, here's the deal. Pick one. Don't become a Soviet scholar. There's like way too many of them. And they're all like jaded political cold warriors, you know, so nobody takes them really seriously. And he was like, and you can't be like a Soviet scholar because the archives are still closed and it's very difficult to get access to a lot of the Soviet materials. He was like, but you know what's great? And he's like, Imperial. <laughs> he's like, not many people did Imperial because, you know, everybody was a cold warrior and did like Soviet studies and some people did like early Russian studies, but you'd have to learn church Slavonic or, or other things. And so, yeah, that's how I started. That's, that's how I got started on imperial history because this guy directed me to that path. So, yeah. And how's it treating you? Oh man, I'm a great server here in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> um, no, it's not too bad. I, I, uh, I don't practice like I'm not a practicing academic, I guess we shall say that I'm not like a teaching. I don't adjunct or anything. Um, mainly a lot by choice. Uh, it's, it's the market's not great. I'm sure people in the thing know it's that way, but I'm also like not willing to relocate across the country multiple times to make this dream happen. Yeah. So I'm pretty happy living in Portland. I make more money, I think than an adjunct does at my brewery job. So surprise. Oh, nice. Those are all the exact reasons that I went from PhD to uh, service industry because a, I wasn't really even that sure that I wanted to do it. Um, and B, like, I didn't want to move 
to wherever the wherever bumfuck was willing to give me a job and then have to move again in two years to like make your way up the the tenure track ladder so yeah definitely preaching to the choir on that yeah definitely so we we wanted to know uh or we wanted to play with the idea of of rumor uh and some of the work that you've done around gossip and rumor sure uh in the 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 uh imper- it, what it what's it called like the imperial period we call it the imperial period it's just like literally like peter the great up to nicholas the second who was killed by the bolsheviks right and not, not so great the, the not so great ending of the romanov dynasty mm. um yeah so i study that um yeah and it's yeah and basically um to just one other point of clarification, just because I'm a bus tickler. My dissertation was actually on Russian old believers that immigrated to Oregon in the 1960s and 70s. So we could get down on some dope religious uh, schism action and talk wow. about the various religious sects. But a lot of it overlapped. What, what we can talk about is a lot of my stuff that I did for imperial studies overlapped with peasant studies. And if you're going to study peasants, you've got to learn about rumors, gossip. Uh, different ways of, of of communicating like community and and ideas because they don't write a lot of stuff down. <laughs> they were largely <laughs> right. illiterate. So if you're studying peasants, one of the first things you have to learn is to like read between the lines and to really look at sources from a different perspective because everything you get that's written is probably going to be written by an administrator who probably thinks those peasants are ridiculous or is probably <laughs> posturing for some sort of imperial court thing. Um, so yeah, that's how I got started doing topics of rumor and gossip because essentially when I started my grad program and I was reading about Russian peasant life and culture, there was a lot about, you know, how they farm and the calendrical season they go through and the festivals, but, and I would read reports of them, you know, engaging in rebellion or they would have instances where like a couple of villages sort of rose up and protested like an increase in taxes or if they were coming to redistribute the land or like do a land survey, anytime a land surveyor showed up, that was like big time trouble for peasants. They almost always harassed land surveyors. Um, and so you had to look at things and I would read these reports and you would, there would be no connected material. It would just be like village A revolted, village B revolted, like three days later, village C did this a week later. And then in two weeks we brought the military in and we were able to quash it. Uh, and I was really curious and interested in, in, how did village A and B know what was going on? How did village C get involved? And so you started kind of unpacking it. And what you discover is that, you know, many people think of peasants as being sort of illiterate and unable to really interact and grapple with the larger world around them outside of their very small village life. But actually peasants are very sophisticated. They utilize information flow. They're able to tap into rumors, to information networks through connections of family, through traveling merchants, through anybody that comes through. And, and strangely enough, through like rituals and divination practices and various little things that they do in their life. All of these are ways of like marshalling information and using it. And so rumor was a very powerful weapon for Russian peasants, uh, especially if they were protesting like the czar or the local noble or things like that. And so today we have Twitter. Correct. <laughs> for the peasant and all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but for, for, for real, though, like, um, you know, we, we, we just opened up with talking about uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg might have the coronavirus. And that did, Chris, like, really get to the front page of the AP, right? That's my understanding. Um, I, I just saw it, uh, like, being, you know, shared, like, after the fact. But yeah. So um, uh, News Channel 8, which uh, they want, you know, they're on your side. How how many local news channels 
describe themselves as on your side. The one in Tampa did. Right? Like, a lot of them do. It seems very... um, Must be part of some kind of, like, firmware update that you can toggle the (laughs) on your side. Yeah, there's like a... News Channel 8. Yeah, it's like just another WordPress blog. It's like the same thing for the (laughs) template for, like, an NBC affiliate. It's like, do we want to be on your side or action news? Yeah. Uh, Okay, yeah, so... um, uh, Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg has canceled four events in South Florida set for Wednesday because of illness. Buttigieg's campaign spokesman, uh, Chris Meager, says the former mayor is sick with a cold. Buttigieg Ooh. still plans to attend an event Wednesday in Charleston, South Carolina with Reverend Al Sharpton, then travel to Washington for previously scheduled meetings. With Al Sharpton? Al fucking Sharpton. What the fuck? He'll probably, like, eat. You know, what does he do? He has to go to that, that diner, like, with Al Sharpton uh, that mm. he does with, like, all the presidential candidates, and he'll, like, do his little rat mode eating of, oh. like, a chicken and waffles or something. It'll look fucking disgusting. Jeremy, we're a decidedly anti-Pete podcast. I hope that that's not like that. That's okay. Oh, I'm not. You. I'm not on the beat ba- Pete bandwagon. No, no, no. I'm okay with that. Okay, good. You know, the truth is, I watch. So I don't watch a ton of the debates because I think a lot of it is is posturing. And 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 I had a good friend who um, did debate, and he said it very well that if you did debate in high school, like I did policy debate, you tend to find debates are just really contrived, like set up things and they're not even really great debates they're just like one liner quips between one another's so i don't watch a ton of the debates i'll put that out front but at the beginning of the summer i watched one of them and all i could think of is i was like i didn't think he said anything great pete never said anything great but he was a he was well spoken i could tell he had good handlers that was the one thing i remember thinking to myself was like yeah this guy's got like pretty good handlers that like keep him in line and tell him what to do which is something that not every candidate can lay claim to all right right there there was in the last debate um there was this moment where bernie sanders was making a point and pete just started talking over him oh my god and you were able to do a side-by-side comparison of what each of them was saying and bernie uh just relentlessly on message that he is was saying his you know his talking points about taking on all of these, all the evil of the world. And Pete is just saying over, like, let's talk about this. Let's open this up. You know what? No, let's talk about this because let me tell you, Senator, let's, we should talk about this. And I saw somebody online saying that that is a legitimate debate, like debate team tactic is to just Mm. talk over, like to just run down their time and distract from them without adding any substance to the debate. I thought that was pretty interesting. That's just a rumor I heard, but. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's it. So were you on debate, Jeremy? I did policy debate. I that's... did policy, which is like um, like some people call it cross X. It essentially is where they give you like resolved, you know, when I was in. So when I did it in high school, I did it for like two years. But one year that I was really active, it was like resolved that uh, America should substantially change its foreign policy towards Russia. So, hey, I was already getting involved oh. in Russian stuff. But um, yeah, so I did I did policy debate. And it, it is it is literally you can do things like that. So there's one tactic you can do where you literally run a bunch of arguments. Like you just go up there and run like 15 arguments. You list 15 different things that's wrong with the opponents or their case. And then you wait for them to get up and see which ones they respond to. And then when you go back up, you just drop all the arguments they talked about. And you're like, okay, I can see those points. And then like the five things they didn't talk about, you just spam those really hard. And mm-hmm. if you have like a good judge, they will award you points for that because the other side essentially didn't talk about one of your arguments. And then you can just hammer home how they did not address it. And then you can win the debate that way. So yeah, there are various time suck arguments you can make and they can come back and say, this is a time suck argument. Like this is not a real argument. You're just spending time 
So you're making me spend time to talk about it, but we're not moving the debate forward. Yeah, dude, debate's all about little little tactics and and, and gambits and all that kind of stuff. So Jeez. definitely when you just sit there and you're like, let's just talk about it. Let's open this up. Yeah, that's definitely a, a stalling tactic for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Th- so uh, so it seems like we were already starting a rumor about Pete Buttigieg having the coronavirus because I couldn't find anything particular, uh, like specific about it. But let's let, let's start that here. Right. Sure. That uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg, <laughs> he's got he's got the Corona extra virus. He's going to or uh, and he's, and he's going to um, uh, uh, infect all of his fellow rats uh, doing the, the high hope stance. And then they start coughing <clears throat> and hacking and falling down. Uh, what um, what would be like the next step if we like, you know, we're 21st century peasants. Right. And yeah. On Jeff Bezos's farm here. So like yes. what? um what would be the next step to get that going? Like, how do how do we get that out into, uh, into the into the world as as good peasants? And how would we weaponize it? I suppose yeah. as well, right? Because yeah. that's part sure. of this. So part of the thing is that the you know. So let's say you're cooking in your estate or whatever, and someone's like, "Oh, you know, yeah, Lord Buttigieg is sick and he's got the plague or something, right?" Like, because that would have been a common Russian thing, sadly, plague or cholera. They had all sorts of not great diseases, right? Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, essentially what you would have done is you would probably spread that around people in your village and you would probably already know like who's with the Lord and who's not because a very interesting, just get a little side thing, a very interesting about Russian um, the estates and peasant politics. I think a lot of people, especially from an American context, if they think about Russian peasants or serfs, uh, the closest uh, uh, analogy they have is like American slavery in the sense that there was plantations and, and landowners and people had to live on the land. Now, we won't go into the total differences, but one of the big ones was that a lot of Southern landowners lived on their estate. Okay. They actually managed it very closely themselves. In Russia, absentee landlordism was was everything. Like nobody wanted to sit on their giant vast estates in the middle of the steppe in Russia or in the Urals. No noble wanted to do that. They wanted to go hang out in St. Petersburg or be in Moscow because of the unique setup of the czarist system. The closer you were to the czar physically, kind of like the the sultan in, in Turkey or in the Ottoman Empire, the closer you are to that person physically, the more power you have. So you don't really want to kick it on your state. So if you had this rumor and you were circulating around, you'd probably already know which of the peasants in the community were like working with the Lord or were the overseers or had like a vested interest in keeping the estate working because they got marginal benefits. And so you would say this. And if you didn't know, this rumor would be a great way to find out who was on your side and who wasn't because you could start talking about this room with people and gossiping when you're doing your work in the fields, or if you're hanging out at night at the end of the day and you're repairing your tools or getting things ready for the next day, um, this would be a great way to establish a community. Then let's say you have a wedding or something. It's like like putting a rose emoji on your Twitter handle. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So that paperclip (laughs) one earlier. (laughs) Right. The paperclip. Exactly. These are little signs. These are signals. They're ways you, you broadcast to people your opinion and sort of your position without really being definitive about it, right? Because a rumor is just a rumor. You might just be passing it along, right? You're not necessarily invested in that rumor. It may not have come from you, per se. It gives you, like, pl- pl- plausible deniability, right? That, correct. Uh, yeah, you'd say, ah, oh, I heard that uh, uh, Lord Buttigieg has a coronavirus. And so, and if someone goes like, Oh, that's not true. Don't do that. And you're like, ah, okay. You're, you're that's just what I heard. You're team yeah. Pete. <laughs> yeah. That's just, that's just what I heard. But now I know that you're team Pete. Yeah. And, and exactly. It's yeah. signal. Yeah. Ah. So, and, and 
and people might want to, and some people might be differentiating because what we might be talking about is kind of more gossipy behavior. So I think some people think of as gossip as an intimate activity, something that happens with a small group of people. It's not necessarily broadcast, whereas rumors tend to be broadcast and tend to be in a bigger group and circulating. But that's like a finer point. I'm sure we could, if people wanted to, you could differentiate. But yeah, the same thing works for gossip or rumor. Telling it is a way of establishing or signaling to find community linkages. And what's really important is that the content of the message that you're saying is not the important thing. It's almost the response and the way you pass it on is more important as a piece of information, as a signifier, I guess, than what the information is. So like we said here, you may not give two flips about people to judge having, you know, whatever you think he has, but you might not like his politics. You might not like certain things. So saying this rumor is a way to figure out who's on your side, who's not. So that's one of the main um, uses, I think, of gossip and rumor, especially in the context of like societies that are illiterate or societies that have less power or communities that perceive themselves to have less power. A rumor or gossip is, is a way to sort of equalize the field. Couldn't you also say like this is a way of saying um, like Lord Buttigieg is weak, right? Is to say that he's sick with a virus. Sure. Right? The implications. It, yeah. The implication being that he's just like generally weak, maybe not if physically also like uh, politically or something. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, and that's what's that's what's really interesting about rumors. And, and this is what makes them so threatening for a lot of people, because they can transform wildly very quickly and they can take on a lot of different meanings. And the context can go in wild directions. Like, I think we've all played that game of telephone as a kid where, you know, someone has the message right and they whisper it into someone's ear and then it goes around like to 10 different people. And by the time the 10th person tells you what it is, it's like totally garbled. Right. Like it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Usually rumors have more coherency to them because the, the core message stays the same. But just like a, a virus in a lot of ways, you know, we're going to talk about going viral. Um, it mutates, it changes. And, and the passing of it, because as you do it, you know, each person has like a different kind of goal or aim with it. Right. Some people might be just trying to cement their community links with people they know. They're like gossiping with someone or sharing rumors with someone they know doesn't like Pete. Right. So they'll just keep talking. That's a way to affirm linkages and social connections. Um, but you might also be doing to test the waters. You might even put your own spin on it because of course people embellish, right? People like to add their own personal takes on things. So it is really interesting. And I think that's why traditionally people, especially those in authority have looked at like rumors and gossip. And it's, I'll tell you this from studying Russian peasant history that every, you know, harvest season, because right when the harvest comes, this is when peasants tend to have the most power against their landlord or against authorities, because if you don't harvest the crop, the crop doesn't go to market. They don't make money. Everybody's, you know, the, the person in charge loses the most then. So you usually find that peasant like uh, protest behavior or revolts usually happen around the harvest season. And um, you would see the military authorities of the Russian czars get together and plan military campaigns against large peasant populations. They would be like, we got to station troops here. We got to move people here. Because if it if it pops off, you know, it may be a month before we get there if we don't have anybody close by to, to quell it. And if you don't squash it right away, it can grow and snowball and can become quite a thorn. And that was one of the constant fears of, of the, the czars, at least up until like the 19th century. But I would say like the 17th and 18th centuries, that was a big concern because they didn't have a lot of. Um, you know, tight centralized power necessarily. And it was difficult. But if you have, you know, tens of thousands of peasants revolting against you, that's a sizable mass, even if they're untrained and unruly and whatnot. So, yeah, they definitely took these things seriously. And it was always at the utmost of their mind, like, 
oh God, what could, what rumor could come out this summer? Like what kind of gossip could be spread around and, and cause the peasants to get uppity or willful? Was there a conscious use of rumor mills and networks by, you know, the, the powerful to um, like maintain and establish power? Like, you know, be like, oh yeah, I heard that he like, you know, has literal mind control and can, you know, like anybody that looks into his eyes when they're talking to him, like basically has to do what he wants or well, something like that. Well, this is like a that. lot of the mystique around Rasputin, right? Was the oh, know, yeah. spreading rumors about his debauchery and his magical powers and his, his gigantic dick. His gigantic dick. Yeah. His, All were true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Histo historian confirmed. Now, I know the, the, the story of his death, like there were several like, um, you know, completely consecutive uh, attempts on his life that like eventually he like perished. Um, but w were there previous attempts on his life? Like, w was that something that had been going on for a while? So he, I mean, essentially the, the thing about Rasputin was that he had very close connections to the Tsarina and the Tsar. Right. Yeah, yeah, he, so mm -hmm. this was like a big problem, especially in, 19th early 20th century russia you know like we talked about before the closer you could get to the czar the more powerful you had because it was a very interesting system i think a lot of people think of absolutist systems as being like the word it sounds like like absolute power and it is true the czar was the absolute top of the russian government everything stemmed from them unlike say in britain that had a parliamentary system and nobles full unlike, of say, right right the power was shared in some way. Like people don't really think about this, but look, one of the biggest hassles of being a king was getting people to agree to pay you, you know, <laughs> to get taxes. Oh, You'd tell like, me about it. You know, <laughs> I want to go into war, but I need you to pay for it. it. That was difficult. It was really hard to get people to like surrender money, right? That's why the peasants and poor people got taxed so much, so heavily. It was much easier to get minuscule amounts of money out of a lot of people than it was to get sizable sums of money out of a few. Right, Damn, this is it. sounding extremely uh, relatable <laughs> to the present <laughs> moment. They're just too smart. We can't tax them. So, yeah, exactly. So that was one of the things with Rasputin was that, you know, if you he was close, so he became it became a sense of jealousy. Right. And also he indulged in sort of mystical occult practices, um, which Eastern Orthodoxy is full of those things. We could talk a lot about how Orthodoxy or Christianity in general is really good at absorbing and integrating various pagan rituals or different, you know, divination practices. And especially with Eastern Orthodoxy, there is some some hairy mixing going on there. OK, so for some people, it was just unsightly, you know, having rescued around was because he was this is the czar. This is the one of the pillars of the Orthodox Church. You know, you can't have him associating and doing ridiculous things. Um, but yeah, I would say that just as peasants use rumors and gossip to attack the nobles, nobles themselves would do the exact same thing and try to attack the you know, people around them, right? And attack Rasputin or, or cast doubt on the czarist system, right? Because of their, their unsightly associations. So I'm curious about returning to peasants. Um, like what, can you give us maybe a couple of specific rumors that might have been spread by peasants to accomplish some kinds of ends, whether they're just creating in-group identity or actually striking out against whatever powerful entities are oppressing them at the time. Like, what sure. kinds of rumors yeah. are these people spreading? So like one of the most common ones, okay, so essentially there would be a lot of themes, but let's say any, so one of the things that, right, so we talk about how the czar runs the system. Well, kind of one of the downsides to that is that rule of law, when, it, when you have just one absolute ruler, the ruler is 
the state, right? That's what like what Louis the Fourteenth said. I am the state. You know, yeah, cool. Like, I'm the man who runs everything. <laughs> so what's interesting about that is that if you don't, if you have someone running all the laws, you have rule of law. They sort of determine what is law, what is mercy, what is punishment. Um, so anytime the laws would get changed, especially with regard to like peasant service or maybe the amount of labor they owe their Lord, or like, like I was talking about before, when they would redistribute the land, like the land sur- surveyor would come in and say, okay, I got to look at the land again and see how it's being used so we can tax it more efficiently. Anytime that stuff would come around, peasants would latch on to whatever was most advantageous to them. So let's say that a document was going around, because here's the other great thing about it. peasants are largely illiterate, right? But they interact in a world that's governed wholly by texts, by documents, and they know the power of these things, but they're also equally able to use this, these very static documents against themselves. So here's one example. Your local lord would get like, a, so let's say the czar put a decree out. They would write that decree, and then he would have to distribute it through his network of people so they could actually make it law, right? So you would give it to basically two different groups. One, you give it to the nobles, and because they have to know, right? Because they're the ones that kind of run the estates, and they're the ones that sort of are your, you know, one of your primary backbones for civil service and all that. So you distribute a whole set of documents through them. Then you distribute a whole other set of documents through the clergy, because the clergy tended to have the most direct connection to the peasants because they administered a lot of their religious rights. Um, most of the, the um, clergy were themselves pretty poor, right? Um, so you'd get these documents to go out. Well, these documents would transmit. Well, guess who moved these documents? Well, they had postal peasants, okay? That was a whole category of peasant, was a postal peasant. And so these people would take documents and move them along. And of course, they couldn't read them, but they would know what they were based on the kind of seals that were on them or how they came down through the channels, right? So if a document's going around saying uh, peasants are going to pay a little less in their total dues, right? Their, their labor dues, whatever, we're going to reduce that burden on them. Well, peasants might just hear freedom, right? They might be like, oh, this is going to be the new decree that says we're all free. And they'll go around and start telling people, hey, Czar just passed a new thing saying we're free. It's time to go tell people we're not paying any more taxes. You know, we're, we're free people now. And then people will be like, no, that's not what the law said. You know, you get the local leader of nobility be like, that's not what the law says. The law says you just pay a little less. And the peasants will be like, nope, nope, nope. Just heard that we're free. And they would just start spreading that around. <laughs> and what they would do is they would use this as like a, a tactic to either stall any changes because the peasant mindset is very conservative in the sense that they have tried and true methods that have kept them alive and kept them going. They're very risk adverse, not because they don't want to take risks but because the consequence of a risk is grave, right? Like, especially with crops or with maybe your social standing, you want to take calculated risks. And so they would use these rumors because, of course, they're just illiterate peasants. They don't know what's going on, but they actually do know what's going on. And they they would use this and then the Lord be like, that's not what the law says. And they would bicker back and forth. And usually they wouldn't go to violence because peasants didn't want to do violence. They knew every time that they escalated a conflict to the violent level, they were going to lose. There was no way they were going to really win. Um, so you wanted to get also just relatable, precip- <laughs> right? You want to get just the precipice of near violence because that's when you have the most power and potential, but not cross over into it. So yeah, freedom was a good one. Anytime laws changed with how much service they owed, that was huge. Peasants always jumped on that. Um, I had an example I did where they did uh, in like the early 19th century, like in the 1840s. So this is so the peasants were emancipated in Russia in 1861. Okay, that was like a huge change. They call this period the great reforms in Russian history because a ton of changes came down. But this was probably the biggest one was that peasants were 
officially emancipated. Although if you look into the details, they really weren't emancipated. They basically were given mortgages on the land they had and they had to pay those back Freedom. over 30 years. Yeah. Because <laughs> the landlords were like, can't just lose all my land to peasants, you know. Very similar uh, to what happened in the anti-rent wars, actually, which yeah. we covered mm. pretty extensively on our show. Um, it was yeah, basically exactly. a tenant uprising in upstate New York where peasants were like, we are tired of being peasants. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. the lords were like, all right, well, we'll give you a mortgage and you got to pay for the land. But yeah, you, you get to be a landlord now, but you got to pay me. Exactly. Same thing happened with with peasants. Essentially, they gave them their land, but then they were like, well, now you got to pay it back. You know, <laughs> like this is yours now, but you got to buy it uh, anyway. So that's a whole different topic. But um, so I did a study. I did one of the very first papers I wrote in graduate school. Uh, was about this, what they call the inventory law reform. Again, it's just like, it's a it's an economic reform. They were going through and trying to modernize their tax system, trying to modernize the records that the central authorities had to tax the populace, right? And so what I found in mine is that there was like three villages in like Ukrainian territories. So these were places that we would now call Ukraine or Eastern Ukraine, um, various provinces. Um, so these peasants were hearing about this new inventory law reform. So one, they immediately were like, we're free again. And they're like, you're not free. You still have to do labor. You still got to do all this stuff. You're just, it's just changing. And then what they would do is they would gather in groups, like big burly men would gather up, right? All the peasants get together. And when the, the surveyor would come in town, he'd have like a couple of guards or a couple of people from the nobility accompanying him. And all these peasants would just get together and kind of like talk really loudly to each other and then hurl insults out at the people. And one of them was like, you know, you talk about the law, like you hold up this piece of paper and you say you 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 have the law in your hands. But we know the law. That was often a, a common refrain from peasants is like, we know what actually the law is because we live it every day. You know, you're just coming and you just have a piece of paper. Um, a really common tactic to use also was that if they brought in like a decree from the czar, the peasants would look it over and be like, nope, the czar didn't sign this. The czar didn't put his <laughs> seal on this. This is not a real thing. And they'd kind of be right because it would just be a document that was copied and handed down. Right. And so the local person would be like, this is the czar's <laughs> decree. But they'd be like, I don't see no czar mark on it. You know, and so they'd be like, damn it. You know, and they'd have to go and like try to prove to them that it worked. All sorts of funny tactics that like a largely illiterate population would turn documents against the people who used them. They were yeah. very canny and able to do that. Around these parts, we determine the authority of a document. Mm-hmm. The authenticity of this document is subject. <laughs> so, and that's also and like when they would revolt that one of the first things they would do is usually if they were in a full scale revolt and they knew that it was just, you know, past the point of no return. First thing you do is you go to the, the local Lord's house and burn all the documents. You burn all the documents because this is the one thing that's holding debt on you. It's one thing that's holding your record against you. It's so like, they would use documents against them, but they would definitely destroy them if they could. So it's like the scene at the end of Fight Club when the Pixies, where is my mind comes on and they blow up the building with all the bank computers. It's like mm-hmm. debts like are gone, man. It's over. Yeah, we'll oh, start yeah. again. Hearing all that. I would be really interested to know how you experienced uh, the beginning of like the fake news panic. Like, what does that mm-hmm. look like to you where people are talking about uh, uh, straight up Russian interference, but mostly like the circulation of news that may not uh, have direct bearing on reality? Let's let's put it that way. Sure. Um, you know, what's really interesting is that, of course, the fake news thing is great because I mean, it's not great, but it's it's an interesting example. No, I because, love it. I love it. Right. I love, I, love fake I, news. I love how misinformed everyone is. It's awesome. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting because 
in a lot of ways, I mean, the fake news has just become the catchphrase for that whole, you know, disparaging what you don't like hearing, right? You're like, yeah. I don't like what that says. That's that's fake. You know, that's just totally fake. Um, it's really interesting, of course, because Trump does it. Now, and that's why it's got such a catchy name, right? Because, of course, the one thing about Trump is he is great at coming up catchphrases. He's, I mean, he kind of shares a lot with, like, Lenin in that way because Lenin was really great at making catchphrases. That's kind of like four-fifths of Lenin's power was like sweet catchphrases. I mean, he really got it. He really understood <laughs> peace, land, and bread. Slow you don't need hearing. to really talk a lot about like why the czars suck. You just got to say peace, land, and bread. Boom. People get it. You know, the same way, like when Trump says fake news, that's a signaling. People get it. They understand what's up. So what's interesting to me is that, okay, so the fake news phenomenon. I think a lot of people, especially on the left, right, like small L liberals, uh, look at something like fake news and they're just horrified by it, right? Because they have this idea that there is a quote unquote capital T truth or there are certain things that just cannot be denied, right? And and a lot of times they'll especially use this with like scientific claims, right? This is super great with science. So people can come up and say, oh, climate change is fake news. And then, you know, people on the left or whatever, or people that are just sane will just be like, no, climate change is real. You know, that's an actual scientific fact. They don't understand that when people are saying it's fake news, it's not that they're trying to assert like an alternative fact or reality. This is, again, very much like gossip and rumor. This is a way of signaling to groups who you are, your affiliations, the kind of social bonds you want to put out there and feel. And you want to see what kind of responses come back. Because think about it this way. We talk about fake news because Trump came up with this term, right? But a lot of people probably thought that Fox News engages in, quote unquote, fake news, right? Because it's fair and balanced and all that junk. Right. Yeah. But they tend to put out a lot of very crazy narratives, you know, just flat out their Their hosts kind of put out these different things and people run with it. It creates a news cycle. I think for a long time, like people on the left or people that, you know, small L liberals were like not happy with Fox news because they felt like it's infotainment, right? Like it's not really, it's not like hard hitting CNN or something. Right. It's, it, uh, well, it's, you know, what's, what's it also it? was people broadcasting straight up conspiracy theories, like the mm -hmm. Glenn Beck show, like connecting, you know, Mao to Obama's like heritage and like how he's, you know, secretly like, you know, an a agent of socialism, like for Muslims, like that was like broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> I like how Van Jones and the Apollo group are, you know, like making a uh, uh, Maoist uh, soldiers for acorn or something. Yeah. But one thing that I was, um, Jeremy, that you're reminding me of is that fake news, the act, when people started talking about fake news, that was like Peter Dow creating Verit, like very, it was, that was liberals <laughs> saying yeah. that, that Look Trump, how far he's come. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, that, boy. yeah. That like Trump's Republican party was putting out fake news and then Trump actually being the sloganeering genius that he is. And the only, really the only way that he's a genius, um, will, uh, said like, no, you're fake news. And then started using fake news in a much more uh, lowercase t, I guess, like truth sort of way. Mm. Like it felt more true to lob fake news at liberals than it was to like verifiably say that what you said is false. Right. So what's oh, so here's something I want to put out there. So we've been talking about gossip and rumor and a lot of the I think a lot of talk and thinking about gossip and rumor and we've even used the term is like 
almost an, not necessarily a negative experience, but something that can be like, I think we use the term weaponized, something that can be and something that people kind of see as disdainful activity or something that's uncouth, right? It's maybe like a bad character habit if you gossip and indulge in rumors, even though we all do it. And it's kind of our guilty pleasure, right? That we kind of use all these terms that make it seem like it's a bad activity or it has roots in not wholesome thoughts or right goodness. What's really interesting, I think, is that if you look at that from perspective like that and things like fake news and the stuff that Trump does, it really is aggravating because you see it as sort of like a negative weaponized attempt. And to be honest, he has malicious intent. I think most times when he's using these slogans, when he calls things fake news, he clearly has an agenda. But what I want to say is I want to posit a larger argument here. I want to say instead of thinking of like rumor, gossip, claims of fake news as being something that is purely from a negative space or purely something that has malicious intent. I'm going to put it out here. What if we thought of rumor and gossip and such things as a playful activity? And I don't mean playful in the sense like, oh, this is fun and like games and, you know, with your balls and jacks or whatever, like kids on the playground. I'm not talking about that kind of playful. I'm thinking of a larger concept of play. And what I'm borrowing from here, I'm going to get a little theory on you a little bit. This guy named James Hans, he wrote in the 80s. He's still alive today, honestly, and he's written quite a bit. But he wrote a really wonderful book called The Play of the World that really talks about the idea of what is play in existence in life. Um, I'll just tell you right now, if you want to learn a lot more about this, you should go check out my buddy's podcast. I'm going to do a little plug for him. It's called Game Studies Study Buddies. It's run by <laughs> a friend of mine. Yeah, yeah Game Studies <laughs> Study Buddies. Title. Yeah, it's odd, dude. They're great. It's part of the what they call the ranged touch network. It's my buddy Cameron Kunzelman and his friend Michael Lutz. Uh, they both have they're both like PhD certified people. But Cameron um, especially does a lot of work at like, oh, geez, I want to say like paste. He's written stuff for like Waypoint. He's really into like the video game scene. He writes a lot, dude. Cameron Cameron puts out an insane amount of content and work. I don't know how he does it. But um, him and Michael have this podcast, Game Study Study Buddies, where if you're interested in game studies, they just kind of go through the classic texts, some of the newer ones. They've been doing a lot of newer ones recently, and they just have a discussion about it. It's a really cool podcast if you're just interested in game studies or if it's something you're studying. It's a great place to go, I think, for undergrads if they're just trying to get into the field. It's a great place for graduates to go if they want to get a little more in-depth discussion on certain topics. But they reviewed this book, and this is one of Cameron's, like, secret gems that he has found when he was doing game studies in college or in, or in graduate school. And he loves James Hans. And this is kind of where I became kind of infatuated with James Hans, because I think the book is really great. And to get back to it, he, he, he creates this concept he calls play. Okay. So we know what play is. James asserts that everything we do is play, like everything, like, and not just people play, but like the rock plays in its environment. Okay. Like it sits around, it's constantly playing with being a rock in a rocky field or in a river. Raising its eyebrow, smelling what it's cooking. (laughs) It does it in very rock ways, right? Um, People do the same thing with play. And what he means by that is that essentially we are always, it's almost like experimentation. We're always putting things out there and adjusting them and, and seeing how it fiddles or moves and then seeing what the result is. Um, so what I want to posit here is that gossip and rumors and things like fake news, these are just elements of play. These are ways that people sort of 
put things together. They're trying to understand a larger whole. And by messing with it or intentionally kind of messing with certain things, they're trying to see what outcomes come out and how they can use that. So I want to posit that maybe Donald Trump might be the most playful president we've ever had. And I would also say something that Fox News is like the most playful news network we've ever had. Like, think about it this way. Uh, and I'm a, totally stealing from Cameron here because he had this great point on the when they talk about James Hahn. So I'm stealing this point because it was great. But he said, you know, Fox News is definitely the most playful network because think about it. Every news cycle, they basically just throw a ton of crap against the wall, like spaghetti against the wall. And they're going to see what sticks. And then whatever kind of sticks, they'll run with for a while. And then they'll, but they'll keep experimenting. They'll keep throwing out things. So when you talk about, you know, they indulge in conspiracy theories. Well, of course, they're going to do that because they can put that up there and they're going to see what gets traction. They're going to see what people respond to. And whatever people like really go for it, respond to or whatever starts generating the next news cycle, they're going to run with it. You know, they're going to keep going full steam ahead. Um, whereas like CNN would feel like they would not want to do that. Right. Cause they're like, no, we can't just indulge in, in weird narratives that have no basis in truth or yeah, maybe they it, do. It, I don't it, really watch news, but well, like, that's the idea, right? Yeah. It, it's certainly not like they, you know, ran with a narrative about how Russia contributed in a majority way to the election of Trump for, you know, the last three and a half years or something like that. They do these things. And I think they're very smart. They're obviously people that are running that network are very intelligent people. They know what they're doing. And I think this is something that we're missing, that people on the left or like little L liberals or people that are just are against sort of this whole fake news phenomena, they don't understand. They think of this as a negative activity and they think of it as a weaponized activity. And so they see it that way. But really, I think a more productive way to see it is as a playful activity, because you can still have negative intent with play. You can still have malicious intent. But you if you just only see it that way, you're ignoring a lot of what we talked about earlier, the sort of like community forming, the bonding the way that you're putting information out there to see who can respond to it. It is, it is a social and community building activity. And that's why like people on uh, that hate fake news use the term and are like disdainfully that's fake news. People who really embrace these kind of narratives say it's fake news in a positive way, right? They're like, well, that's fake news. And I know it's fake, right? Because I'm, I'm woke or I know what's up. Um, yeah, it and, seems and, like a lot of these that both the rumor and gossip and then play are, are mostly about creating in groups and out groups, whether that happens at the level of like actual community building, say in a village or whether it happens at the level of like, you know, the nation state and identity groups, the um, posting wars, the posting wars. Uh, it, exactly. it, it strikes me as like the primary function is, is almost like very tribal. Um, in the same way that playing like just with jacks, like, you know, team play, baseball, everything else is, is really about whether you're a player or a fan. Um, it seems like that's the, the primary purpose that it serves. Correct me if I'm wrong, but. Yeah, I mean, we're social, we're social creatures, right? And so I think a lot of the activities and things we do tie into that. So I, so like a good example. So we'll take here. So I have this thing, like there's a great other book I'll mention here by her name's Patricia Spax, Patricia Spax. She wrote a book called Gossip in the 80s, and it's really great because I think it's it's a fun read because it's it was written in the 80s. So it has a lot of great like 80s examples of gossip, like People magazine and stuff. It's wonderful. Um, it's a great book that looks at sort of she's, I believe, an English person. So she's looking at sort of literary examples of gossip as it's used in like novels or stories. But she also talks about sort of gossip in real life. Um, and one of the points she makes is that one of the things that's so attractive about gossip is that it allows someone to claim the experience of someone else. So 
in a way like when you tell someone like you're like, oh, did you hear about Jim, blah, blah, blah. Or like we're talking about Pete or like, did you hear Pete Buttigieg has coronavirus? Like when you say that you're taking over Pete Buttigieg's experience and you're Whoa. putting your own spin on it. And Working your own ownership. Into, yeah. <laughs> Working into Pete. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's one of the interesting things. And, and that's why I think people kind of miss some of this aspect of Gossip Rumor because they're so concerned with the effect that they don't think about the actual act itself. And as we talked about earlier, a lot of times gossip and rumor, the very thing you're sharing is not even important. It's not even the important thing. It could be totally false. You know, it, it's not factual information you're putting out there. It is literally just a, a bond. It's a way of like asserting a community of saying who you are. It's a, it's a signaling, right? It's a manifestation, a, a sign or whatever. Um, there's like a great, so no, let's take a little bit back here. When I was writing um, in graduate school and I was doing these studies on peasants and I was looking at rumors and information sharing, um, naturally, when you go into humanities studies, you know, you have to read Foucault, right? Like everybody reads Foucault. Foucault right? alert. Wee -woo, wee -woo. <laughs> yeah, hit the buzzer. <laughs> so I don't know if you guys have read, um, so like so they have those lectures, right? The, 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 the series of lectures he did. Literally he was the only there. way he is legible is by reading his, I don't care, like don't yeah. at me. If reading Foucault is a waste of time, just read his lectures. That's yeah, my, I, that's I, my hot take. I, yeah, no, I, I will, you know, like they, they're like the latest things that they published. It's been, it was like posthumous, posthumous, but um, uh, if you tried to read Foucault and like you still want to know like what the hell that weird guy is saying and his books don't make any sense, the lectures that they put out are, yeah, way more legible. Where he was he's asked just, about he just that. has to say it. He was <laughs> asked about that. Like, why is it that when you speak on your ideas, they're so plain spoken and understandable, but your writing is so dense and illegible? And he said, well, if I wrote the way that I speak, or if I wrote the way that Americans write, I would be laughed out of the French Academy. Like, that's just not done in France. <laughs> you have to write in a way that is uh, totally dense and impenetrable Impossible. Yeah, yeah impenetrable thank yeah. you right that's sort of the demands of the academy versus like a lecture and what's and if, that's interesting you say that because of course the lectures he gave part of the mandate of those lectures with the is that they were open to the public like anybody could come in and like audit it like you could just just show up and sit down so i think a lot of that also made it more important that he was more plain spoken like he said or more to the point not like hiding around a bunch of metaphors and, and getting really in-depth academic ease or whatever but I love the lectures, too. I think they're great. If you've never read them, you should check them out because it really gives you a lot of that personality Foucault had. I'm sure he had tons of it, you know. Um, he was he a leather daddy. Yeah, this guy was totally, <laughs> right? he had a lot of personality. So his lectures are great because you, it really does break it down. And what's really great about them, just to go into a little more, is that they do a little – it's just like he, every week, right? So it's, he goes in-depth on an example and he has more time to talk about sort of his examples of power and of discipline and all that stuff. So in one of his earlier ones, let's see, this one's from Society Must Be Defended. So this is the one where he's talking about essentially justifications made by philosophers or other thinkers to justify the existence of a, a large centralized state or power that would be so powerful and encompassing that it could do things like defend society or put forth claims that it needs to defend society from some harm or ill, right? And this is like deeply embedded in... The stuff that you probably got like a high school reading of about like uh, um, people who would appeal to natural conditions, right? So like what, what what it was like in the state of nature, which is really just a way of saying like how do we control for society, right? You know, like how, like outside of social conditions, like what is just what just naturally occurs, which of course 
it says more about who's speaking than like any sort of scientific analysis, right? Because they're just saying like, well, I think this is immutable and never changing. Yeah, it's that, like it's that, nature. I mean, it is the problem that Marx never considered human nature. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. So, I mean, because like in, in this book we're talking about here, society must be defended. One of the examples that Foucault discusses is Hobbes, right? The, the, the nasty, brutish life, you know, short guy. Because um, he wrote, what is it, the Leviathan, which is his manifesto for building a Leviathan of a state, right? You want to build a giant state because the giant state's going to keep life from being nasty, brutish and short and all that stuff. Um, so one of the things that Hobbes puts forth is he says, you know, the reason we need a really powerful state and the reason we need this is because in the natural state of existence, um, it's violent, right? It's super violent. And it's because and it's so violent because one side cannot tell if the other is weaker or stronger. And so you ah, have to, like, just try it out that, and, like, further sucker punch someone. And that's how you know if you're if you're strong. So one of the things he talks about is that the strongest will never feel strong enough. And the weakest will never feel weak enough because and one of the things he says is because the weak have access to wiles, surprises, alliances, and the strong know this. And so the strong can never be totally confident and secure that they will be the strongest in the natural state of being because the weak are always using basically rumors, gossip, alliances to constantly attack and degrade the position of the strong. But they can never themselves become the strongest. So therefore, conflict continues because there's no there's no differentiation. You cannot tell the difference between two sides. It is not immediately apparent. Therefore, we need a state to come in. This is what Hobbes would say. We need a powerful state to show up that can enact differentiation, that can separate people in different categories. And in doing so, we will eliminate some of the like base instinct and need for violence. So okay, that's what Hobbes says. Basically, the state would come in and say, like, you're weak. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm telling you, you're weak. Stop trying. Exactly. Well, the state by existence yeah. would say I'm the strongest, right. essentially. Yeah. Right. So yeah. everybody is weak compared to the state because I'm the Leviathan. Right. Well, Foucault is very interesting because, of course, he picks this apart and he says, you know, well, let's let's look at this a little more. So what does that mean? You know, when you have a state where not where you can't tell the difference. Right. So or he says what's really more important is that you can tell the difference, but those differences are ephemeral, minute. Um, they don't really make a lot of sense. Right. And he says essentially because of that, you're going to have all these things where instead of having like a direct battle. So like if this were like a natural state and you couldn't tell one side was more powerful than the other, you'd probably have violent conflict. And then eventually some side would die or one side would just lose the will to fight or something like that. Right. Like natural stuff. We get this in our heads. Like if you have a violent conflict, someone's probably going to come out on top. Right. Um, So for Foucault, like this idea that Hobbes is like, everybody's just always at fighting, but they're, you know, can't tell the difference. He's like, that's not true. Because if that's true, you know, then there would be like war. Right. But we can tell that there is no war like Hobbes's war. There's no blood. There's no fighting because people don't go to violent ends like that. Right. They're using wild surprises or using like tactics, all this stuff. So Foucault says that instead you get presentations, manifestations, signs, emphatic expressions, wiles and deceitful expressions. OK, he goes on and says that people will use things like traps, intentions disguised as their opposite and worries disguised as certainties. So it's a theater where like you have all these manifestations. And so this is where like the power of gossip and rumor begins to come in because the strong are looking at the weak and saying, God, they're using gossip and rumor all the time. These aren't like physical swords or like punches coming. Right. But they're like psychic blows. And so this is one of the things that, that we talk about. This is where the negative connotation of gossip begins to develop. Uh, it's always been around, 
But especially when you're starting to think about like modern states, you know, there's the same way that religious authorities had to worry about heretics uh, uh, coming in and disparaging their belief. This, civil authorities are like, man, we got to really get on top of this rumor, you know, <laughs> because rumors can really undermine a state very quickly. Yeah, F- um, Foucault is always the the daddy of owned by your own logic. Right. So you would always take someone's argument and say, like, no, within your argument, that's obvious. Like, it's obviously not true because otherwise the state wouldn't work or something. You know, but by the thing you said in paragraph two, paragraph five right. would not make any sense. Yeah. The larger argument is this. People traditionally see rumor and gossip and things like that as a negative experience. Even books that have been written about it, like James Scott wrote a book about peasant. So being taken back to peasants. If you haven't read James Scott, he's like one of the fundamental peasant study guys. He wrote like this book called The Moral Economy of the Peasant, which is really just a bunch of graphs explaining why they don't use better agricultural techniques. <laughs> but he, it's it's you know, really morality, it's graphs. Awesome. Yeah, it's great. It's yeah. morality and graphs. Yeah. Um but yeah, it was it's a it's a trippy book. I mean it's so then he also had another book called Weapons of the Week, which I think more people are familiar with. And it's all about I think it's peasants in Thailand or Vietnam, Southeast Asia. And it's all about the the sort of behaviors they have when they're hanging out with each other versus when they're hanging out in front of the boss and all these kind of things. And, and, but even the title of that book, weapons of the week, it, it connotates like a, a negative or violent aspect to, to using things like gossip and rumor, right? Because you're weak and that's what you use. And that's sort of what Hobbes was talking about. And Foucault was talking about that, like, because the weak have access to wiles and surprise and rumors, you can never tell, you know, who's the strongest and who's the weakest. Um, and that's really interesting because I think people think of that and that's, what's leading to some of a really not productive discourse around things like fake news, rumor, gossip. That's why I bring in the thing about play. And what's interesting about that, so I'll just read a little bit of this James Hans, and we can wrap it up there. But what he says essentially is that play is an experiential mode. It's like a way of, of confirming or denying the things we have around us in our world and the way we experience it, okay? Um, and it's not just confined to like cognitive stuff. It's like the fact that we even engage with the world and do play. And so he talks about like, a good example of play is having a great conversation. Like it's not easy to fall into conversation, right? With someone, you know, you meet someone new, you're trying to make small talk. You're trying to find those connective points. That is play. That's what he would call play when we're sitting there. So that's a, I should have used that example at the beginning because play is a very abstract idea. So it's, so the it idea seems of like, like tra- play is really just like experimentation, like informal experimentation, right? Is that? Yes, essentially. A very quick, uh, uh, definition. Yeah. yeah okay. So yeah. Are you saying, saying it's like, are you saying that go ahead. the whole world is a game? that God is a gamer. I always knew God was a gamer, to be honest. Because that's what I'm taking away from this. <laughs> God is a gamer. And he streams live on Twitch on Fridays at 7 o'clock. It's on Sundays. Um, it's on Sundays. Oh, my bad. The day of rest, I forgot. <laughs> yeah. For, oh, no, yeah, no, wait. No, God's Jewish, so it's Fridays. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Oh, yeah. it's Friday. Yeah, <laughs> correction. <laughs> correction. So, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it is an experiment, experiential, experimental way of sort of figuring things out. And, and he has a whole bunch of reasons why we don't acknowledge that play is so important in our lives because we tend to degrade it or make it seem like a childish activity or something that creates a separate sphere. Like you may have heard the magic circle talk. Um, if you talk about game studies, this idea that when you play a game or get into rule set, it's like a, a separate space that you put yourself in. And Hans would say, that's not really true. Like, and he, in fact, at the beginning of his book, he's like, I'm not going to talk about games or sports because that is a construct, you know, that has things put around it and has rules. I'm talking about play. I'm talking about the stuff that like informs games, you know, and gets into it. The raw, um, it's not a separate shit. sphere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think that when we think about rumor and gossip, 
I would just posit that maybe a more productive way to think about it is a playful activity. And I think many people that's going to not sit well with them because they think of play as a fun and frivolous thing. And and we need to get away from that idea. Play is a very serious topic and, a, and something that we do every day. Um, and I, I think that helps give that topic more depth and gives it more connective ability and helps escape some of the pitfalls of just like, you know, oh, that's just that's just Trump calling it fake news. Well, he's just a liar. Like he just lies. Well, it's more than just lying. It's and, and he wouldn't just keep doing it if it was just telling lies. I mean, the dude loves lying, but like <laughs> there's larger things going on here, you know, that he's trying to do. And I think a lot of the critiques miss that or overlook it. And it kind of explains like people are like, oh, these dummies that love Trump, these Trump dummies, like there's there's deeper connective things going on here. And he's just very canny at using it. And that's why I would say and I'll say it again. He might be the most playful president we've ever had. Yeah. Yeah, he, he he does, um, you know, talk about the Clinton body count. Uh, he, you know, chants lock her up. I, I guess he just encourages that kind of thing. But yeah, a, but, a lot I mean, I want to say play. he said like Democrats were the reason the, the stock market was crashing, even though a lot of them were like, no, it's because well, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why the, the stock market's correcting or whatever. But, you know, the official narrative, right, is that the virus talk has gotten the market spooked. But yeah. even he went out and was just like, no, nope, it's Democrats, blah, blah, blah. He will do anything. He will take any narrative and try to twist it, because if that stuck, then he would be repeating that line a million times. Right. Yeah. Um, he's always going to go out and say those kind of things to see how it connects with his audience, how he can use it. Uh, whereas other presidents, other more political people are more reserved, right? They're trying to be on message, on point. Trump's willing to let it go. You know, that's why he has the giant Sharpie, you know, pieces of paper with giant words on it. He doesn't <laughs> need a lot of detailed stuff. He just needs the bare bones and he can run with it. Yeah. 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 I, I hope if anyone takes anything from this, it's the idea that uh, fake news isn't just being misinformed. It is like the active creation of like new narratives and a new reality that other facts then like link up into. It's all about me like creating meaning and new worlds that uh, uh, and in group statuses. And so it's like, it's never just about like a bunch of dumb rubes uh, believing stupid stuff. Although it's also that, but it's never just that a lot it's of it. It's never just that. Yeah. yeah exactly. It's, it's about creating a new center of power with a new agreed upon set of, uh, of facts and, and like interpretations of the world. I actually have kind of a, a playful wildflower for today, actually. And I have not really discussed this Fitting. with either of the boys. So what this would if be fun. God was a gamer like us? <laughs> no, that's too many syllables. Sorry. So this is, um, this comes to us from the fabulous, um, fact based non rumor outlet, the New York post <laughs> <laughs> baboon on way to vasectomy escapes with two female companions in Sydney. Living his best life. Fucking rules, dude. So, um, a male baboon was uh, being taken to have a vasectomy. He lives in Australia. Basically, they um, he's he's an older gentleman, and so these uh, he was living on this conservation, and they wanted him to be able to. They, he was no longer. Uh, they had deemed him unfit to continue mating with the females of his tribe what do baboons have yeah i didn't know that we did like some hardcore eugenics to baboons there is a fantastic (laughs) show that was called something it was called like monkey sanctuary or something and it was about this primate sanctuary um and it is remarkable how much intervention is required to keep like stable healthy 
primate populations. It's not about being pure. It's about it's about maintain like keeping power. A, a large part of the problem with uh, primates and keeping them in a controlled environment is actually managing their social relationships. Yeah, you have to be the state. You have to make sure that ha- they know yes. that they are way weaker than you. You so have that- to be the Hobbesian state. You have to like settle these power disputes. You have to be kind of like the arbiter of of power struggles among these primates. Um, I'm just saying, have you ever seen a Jewish baboon? No, I think there's something up to that. I think. God, you Jews, you always make everything about the fucking Holocaust, I swear to God. <laughs> just get over it. Get over it. It's also about the pogroms and also the pyramids. And the, Oh, God, I forgot about the pyramids. <laughs> Never Jesus. forget. Never forget. Never forget the pyramids. Oh, I can't believe I forgot. Um so basically what happened is that while this baboon was in transport, a lock on either the truck or the crate that was transporting the 15 year old male and two female baboons uh, somehow failed. And the female baboons were just there to keep him company to like keep him calm and relaxed oh, on yeah. his way to getting his uh, get getting his snip snip. And so they make their escape and they basically just kind of hung out in this car park and like they looked around and um just kind of like were well monkeying around and so uh the 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 quote from the health uh, the health minister was that uh they obviously decided that inspecting the premises was an appropriate way to spend a couple of hours at the hospital so people were calling into the uh, the Sydney radio station saying that they were seeing these fucking baboons running around. Or were they fucking? No, they didn't fuck. No, they didn't As far fuck. as we know, they didn't fuck. Man, what, what a waste. So now yeah. I'm going to do something. I'm really going to embarrass <laughs> myself and try to do my Australian accent, which oh typically boy. I do a lot of practice for before I uh, pull one off. So let's see. Brittany ate like a can of Vegemite. Uh, does Vegemite come in a can? Yeah, like a whole can. Jar. Jar, yeah. A whole jar of Vegemite before we started. It's true. And I did consult my kangaroo buddies to yeah. just make sure that. All right. So here's here's uh, one of the people calling into the Sydney radio station. Mate, I'm dead serious. I'm at RPA. I'm six floors up and I was just having a gaze out the car park. Car park. Car, car, park. car park. I can't. That one's hard. <laughs> and there were three baboons in the car park, one witness said. I'm dead set serious. They even had shiny red bottoms. <laughs> it was a little more cockney than Australian, but I did my best. Uh, the shiny red bottoms quote is yeah, very real. fucking funny. Um, Good band name. So they were Ooh, eventually yeah. uh, captured and um, yeah. That's it. That's beautiful. But I think it's kind of fun. Yeah. They had his, he had his last little romp, you know. A little shiny before red Before they put romp. him in retirement. Yeah. Uh, some, speaking of, uh, of Australian accents, this will blow everyone's mind. Uh, the guy that played Garcia on Reno 911, voice of Rocco in Rocco's Modern Life. Really? Yeah. Wow. Shut I the would, fucking door. Are you yeah, I would not have guessed. Shit's true. Um, did you guys ever see that movie, uh, Any Which Way But Loose? Uh, starting Clint Eastwood. It's Whoa. this really bizarre movie where Clint Eastwood has a uh, orangutan um, like friend that I think he rides like a motorcycle with, and he's basically like a street fighter for like money. And <laughs> he and, and and he like beats up people in like these like bets, you know, like uh, you know, like back alley brawl, like bare knuckle boxing. Uh, Wait, the orangutan or no, or no, Clint uh, Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. But then there's these scenes that 
are off camera. They're like in a little like uh, barn or something where the orangutan will beat him up. So he can beat up any human, Clint Eastwood. But the orangutan is like the top, like is is like the dom, yeah, yeah, yeah. in in the relationship. Like he basically lives in like quiet um, fear of of the orangutan, who's also his friend, because the orangutan can like beat him up. (laughs) <laughs> you understand that through through uh they, they like enter a room and like you know they're they're fighting or something and then the orangutan is the victor at, i feel like you're scene. making this up <laughs> <laughs> wow. check, check it out yeah i may have the the title wrong but i'm yeah. pretty sure it's any which way but loose this wasn't gran turismo 2 or whatever <laughs> no no this is but it's funny because he has like the same kind of attitude in this film uh Check the, it out. the whole like get off your get off my lawn vibe. Yeah, 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 yeah. But get off my orangutan. Yeah, he's the immovable force, but he brings around the like immovable rock with him everywhere. He's like, I can beat any human with this orangutan. <laughs> yeah. I think he wins the orangutan in a fight. Immovable. I think he like sees that somebody like mistreating the orangutan is like, I'm gonna take that orangutan from you, and then just like fights him for it, and then that then they're friends forever. I'm pretty sure that's the how they meet. That's, that's, that's a very heartwarming relatable. story. Yeah, yeah it's relatable. <laughs> Eastwood tells the best tales, doesn't he? He just really gets to the heart of it. So, uh, so we're about to get into Kropotkin. You're gonna get, today. You're gonna get chapters six and seven. So, so yeah, you're about to hear that. Um, but first, I just have like a PSA. I, I just have a little bit of a, a bone to pick with some of you people. No, I'm just kidding. I love you all, <laughs> most of you. Um, but so I, in my ongoing quest to always improve the audio quality and the production quality of this show, as well as my own, the books that I myself produce, I've been playing around a lot with different settings and trying to use like, to, you know, le- as little um, processor processing and plugins as possible. And so I recently experimented with an episode in which I I did not use a noise gate and noise gate remove sounds below a certain decibel and so often that includes things like breath noises and uh, background noise (laughs) and all kinds of stuff like that and after that episode we had some folks thinking that we are uh, smoking drugs on air and so we just need to do a brief demonstration of the the difference between uh, a bong and a vape because I that episode featured some sounds of me using my vape pen. I am two now two months off cigarettes. Thank you very much. No tobacco, tobacco free. I finally took the advice of all those dare losers in middle school, and I've been tobacco free for two months. I hate that fucking lion. But so what you heard was me vaping, and my deep, my sincerest apologies for that. Uh, I guess when I was doing the editing, it did not sound that uh, noticeable to me, but some of you good folks have noticed it. So we're just going to do a quick tutorial on the difference between the sound of a bong and the sound of a vape. This is actually a tobacco water pipe, not used for any drugs that are illegal in New York State. This is only used for legal tobacco purposes. So let's hear that. Okay, so that's that's a legal tobacco water. Pipe. <laughs> 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 <sighs> All right, and now the more you know. <laughs> that's my PSA on that. So, um my my apologies for the poor audio quality of that episode. And I suppose I'm back at using a noise gate again. 
um, which is fine. The vape sounds like a gas leak and <laughs> water. Well, the water pipe that you have really good tobacco in, no doubt, uh, sounds Only like a babbling brook. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. See, there we go. Completely different. So thank you so much, Jeremy, for coming on Iron Weeds. We had a great time chatting with you. I hope that you also had a good time. Um, where can listeners like find any um, public presence of yours? I, are you on Twitter, Jeremy? I am on Twitter. I so, go under the handle uh, J.S. Antley. So J-S-A-N-T-L-E-Y. My last name's Antley. Um, my middle name's Scott, so I'm not J. Santley. I think I've met people and they're like, oh, Mr. Santley. And I'm like, no, that's just that's just my middle name. <laughs> Antley. Um, yeah, you can find me on there. I don't, I don't, I'm a tweet sometimes I've been getting a little bit away cause now I'm on like discord and, and other things. Cause I, I'm just slowly insulating myself with communities that are, are not crazy, but, um, but I have, still love Twitter. I honestly use Twitter you. pretty much for like basketball news and baseball news, like for sports. That's where I go now. I go to Twitter for sports. Nice. Uh, I just go to Twitter to get angry, but it's I a good, that's like also a great, that's terrible. Go. It's awful. Um, but yeah, you can look at me up there. I've written stuff for um, Real Life magazine. If you look for that on the online, the Real Life, right? And then I've written stuff for, um, geez, the New Inquiry. That was a while ago. I've done other game things. If you look up Jeremy Antley, you'll probably find a couple of stuff. I've done. I've dabbled in lots of things. I'm sort of um, a jack of all trades, I guess. Nice. So uh, you can find us on Twitter. Iron Weeds Pod. You can find us on Instagram. Iron Weeds Pod. You can send us an email at ironweedspod at gmail.com. <laughs> you guys are less enthusiastic about this goodbye format <laughs> than it used to be. No, that, like that like was like a low, it was like a lo-fi, yeah, like, yeah. chill. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, did you guys hear the, uh, or see that somebody took uh, Bernie's eight and a half hour, um, I'm going to uh, sample it uh, and put uh, it in. Yeah, filibuster, yeah. but lo-fi. I'll put the, the <laughs> so we'll, good. We'll lead you out with the warm tones of Bernie Sanders filibuster over lo-fi as we get into the uh kropotkin chapter six dwellings chapter seven clothing and kropotkin is going to reference some uh russian peasants in this chapter as well so quite fitting for our general content and once again when this whole audiobook is complete um it'd be in terms of being released uh chapter by chapter it will be available on our patreon which is patreon.com slash ironweeds thank you very much as a whole book so you just download the whole thing take uh uh, sonorous voice with you and listen to the uh, uh, amazing uh, theory of Kropotkin. It's not amazing. It's it's middling at best. It's groundbreaking, but not all true. <laughs> and you're going to see this a lot in this chapter. Very romanticizing of working people. Um, it's yeah, it's, kind it's of, a feel-good it's, book. It verges on like noble savage territory, but for the working class instead of like uh, indigenous populations, where it's just like they will just automatically do everything perfectly because they're of such noble spirit and they're so, you know, superior. to. And it's like working people are just people like Kropotkin needs to kind of, I don't know, stop fucking hitting the tobacco water pipe so hard and realize (laughs) that working people are just normal people sometimes it does come out that he was a noble that renounced his uh heritage and uh, yeah he kind of comes off as like the liberal i'm down i'm down with the proletariat now dog white people are so awful says the whitest fucking becky that you've ever seen in your life like that's kropotkin i feel like but um, was kropotkin like a russian noble was he an immigrant or something Yeah. yeah 
that was a whole tradition in Russian history, dude, of people like it basically started with like Tolstoy and a bunch of people who were like, peasants are the soul of Russia. Yeah. You know, but these were coming from like the biggest, noblest people that like literally could be the furthest away from like the soul of Russia. You like never met a fucking peasant like never got dirty shoes in their whole life. Yeah. Tolstoy actually did hang out with peasants. That's true. Yes, Tolstoy did. He did. But that was kind of like that whole trend of like, man, this is this is it, baby. It doesn't get any better than this. But maybe they were right. I mean, it was so long ago. Maybe, you know, peasants were, you know, they're not making them like they used to. (laughs) (laughs) They're not not peasanting their best, folks. Yeah. Speaking of Trump being catchphrase president, like he's totally changed our language for ever and always. Okay. Thank you so much. Please enjoy this Kropotkin. Bye-bye. Love you. Bye-bye. Mr. President, um, as I think uh, everyone knows, uh, the President of the United States, President Obama, and the Republican leadership have reached an agreement on a very significant tax bill. Uh, In my view, uh, the agreement that they reached is a bad deal for the American people. I think we can do better. And I am here today to take a strong stand against this bill. And I intend to tell my colleagues and the nation exactly why. Why I am in opposition to this bill. You can call what I'm doing today whatever you want. You can call it a filibuster. You can call it a very long speech. I'm not here to set any great records. To, to make a spectacle. I am simply here today to take as long as I can to explain to the American people the fact that we have got to do a lot better. Chapter 6. This, this Dwellings. Those who have closely watched the growth of certain ideas among the workers must have noticed that on one momentous question, the housing of the people, namely, a definite conclusion is being imperceptibly arrived at. It is a known fact that in the large towns of France, and in many of the smaller ones also, the workers are coming gradually to the conclusion that dwelling houses are in no sense the property of those whom the state recognizes as their owners. This idea has evolved naturally in the minds of the people, and nothing will ever convince them again that the rights of property ought to extend to houses. The house was not built by its owner, It was erected, decorated, and furnished by innumerable workers in the timber yard, the brick field, and the workshop, toiling for dear life at a minimum wage. The money spent by the owner was not the product of his own toil. It was amassed, like all other riches, by paying the workers two-thirds, or only half of what was their due. Moreover, and it is here that the enormity of the whole proceeding becomes most glaring, the house owes its actual value to the profit which the owner can make out of it. Now, this profit results from the fact that his house is built in a town possessing bridges, keys, and fine public buildings, and affording to its inhabitants a thousand comforts and conveniences unknown in villages. A town well-paved, lighted with gas, in regular communication with other towns, and itself a center of industry, commerce, science, and art, a town which the work of twenty or thirty generations has gone to render habitable, healthy, and beautiful. A house in certain parts of Paris may be valued at thousands of pounds sterling, not because thousands of pounds worth of labor have been expended on that particular house, but because it is in Paris. Because for centuries workmen, artists, thinkers, and men of learning and letters have contributed to make Paris what it is today, 
a center of industry, commerce, politics, art, and science. Because Paris has a past. Because, thanks to literature, the names of its streets are household words in foreign countries as well as at home. Because it is the fruit of 18 centuries of toil, the work of 50 generations of the whole French nation. Who, then, can appropriate to himself the tiniest plot of ground or the meanest building without committing a flagrant injustice? Who, then, has the right to sell to any bidder the smallest portion of the common heritage? On that point, as we have said, the workers are agreed. The idea of free dwelling showed its existence very plainly during the siege of Paris, when the cry was for an abatement, pure and simple, of the terms demanded by the landlords. It appeared again during the Commune of 1871, when the Paris workmen expected the Communal Council to decide boldly on the abolition of rent. And when the new revolution comes, it will be the first question with which the poor will concern themselves. Whether in time of revolution or in time of peace, the worker must be housed somehow or other. He must have some sort of roof over his head. But however tumble-down and squalid your dwelling may be, there is always a landlord who can evict you. True, during the revolution he cannot find bailiffs and police sergeants to throw your rags and chattels into the street, but who knows what the new government will do tomorrow? Who can say that it will not call in the aid of force again and set the police pack upon you to hound you out of your hovels? We have seen the commune proclaim the remission of rents due up to the 1st of April only. After that, rent had to be paid, though Paris was in a state of chaos and industry at a standstill, so that the revolutionist had absolutely nothing to depend upon but his allowance of 15 pence a day. Now, the worker must be made to see clearly that in refusing to pay rent to a landlord or owner, he is not simply profiting by the disorganization of authority. He must understand that the abolition of rent is a recognized principle, sanctioned, so to speak, by popular assent, that to be housed rent-free is a right proclaimed aloud by the people. Are we going to wait till this measure, which is in harmony with every honest man's sense of justice, is taken up by the few socialists scattered among the middle-class elements of which the provisionary government will be composed? We should have to wait long, till the return of reaction, in fact. This is why, refusing uniforms and badges, those outward signs of authority and servitude, and remaining people among the people, the earnest revolutionists will work side by side with the masses, that the abolition of rent, the expropriation of houses, may become an accomplished fact. They will prepare the ground and encourage ideas to grow in this direction. And when the fruit of their labors is ripe, the people will proceed to expropriate the houses without giving heed to the theories which will certainly be thrust in their way. Theories about paying compensation to landlords and finding first the necessary funds. On the day that the expropriation of houses takes place, on that day, the exploited workers will have realized that the new times have come that labor will no longer have to bear the yoke of the rich and the powerful, that equality has been openly proclaimed, that this revolution is a real fact and not a theatrical make-believe, like so many others preceding it. If the idea of expropriation be adopted by the people, it will be carried into effect in spite of all the supposedly insurmountable obstacles with which we are menaced. Of course, the good folk in new uniforms, seated in the official armchairs of the Hôtel de Ville, will be sure to busy themselves in heaping up obstacles. 
They will talk of giving compensation to the landlords, of preparing statistics and drawing up long reports. Yes, they would be capable of drawing up reports long enough to outlast the hopes of the people, who, after waiting and starving and enforced idleness, and seeing nothing come of all these official researches, would lose heart and faith in the revolution, and abandon the field to the reactionaries. The new bureaucracy would end by making expropriation hateful in the eyes of all. Here, indeed, is a rock which might shipwreck our hopes. But if the people turn a deaf ear to the specious arguments used to dazzle them, and realize that new life needs new conditions, and if they undertake the task themselves, then expropriation can be effected without any great difficulty. But how? How can it be done, you ask us? We shall try to reply to this question, but with a reservation. We have no intention of tracing out the plans of expropriation in their smallest details. We know beforehand that all any man or a group of men could suggest today would be far surpassed by the reality when it comes. Man will accomplish greater things, and accomplish them better and by simpler methods than those dictated to him beforehand. Thus, we are content to indicate the manner by which expropriation might be accomplished without the intervention of government. We do not propose to go out of our way to answer those who declare that the thing is impossible. We confine ourselves to replying that we are not the upholders of any particular method of organization. We are only concerned to demonstrate that expropriation could be affected by popular initiative and could not be affected by any other means whatever. It seems very likely that, as soon as expropriation is fairly started, groups of volunteers will spring up in every district, street, and block of houses, and undertake to inquire into the number of flats and houses which are empty, and of those which are overcrowded. The unwholesome slums and the houses which are too spacious for their occupants might well be used to house those who were stifled in swarming tenements. In a few days, these volunteers would have drawn up complete lists for the street and the district of all the flats, tenements, family mansions, and villa residences, all the rooms and suites of rooms, healthy and unhealthy, small and large, bedded dens and homes of luxury. Freely communicating with each other, these volunteers would soon have their statistics complete. False statistics can be manufactured in boardrooms and offices, but true and exact statistics must begin with the individual and mount up from the simple to the complex. Then, without waiting for anyone's leave, those citizens will probably go and find their comrades who were living in miserable garrets and hovels and will say to them simply, It is a real revolution this time, comrades, and no mistake about it. Come to such a place this evening. All the neighborhood will be there. We are going to redistribute the dwelling houses. If you were tired of your slum garret, come and choose one of the flats of five rooms that are to be disposed of, and when you have once moved in, you shall stay. Never fear. The people are up in arms, and he who would venture to evict you will have to answer to them. But everyone will want a fine house or a spacious flat, we are told. No, you are mistaken. It is not the people's way to clamor for the moon. On the contrary, Every time we have seen them set about repairing a wrong, we have been struck by the good sense and instinct for justice which animates the masses. Have we ever known them to demand the impossible? Have we ever seen the people of Paris fighting among themselves while waiting for their rations of bread or firewood during the two sieges? The patience and resignation which prevailed among them was constantly held up to admiration by the foreign press correspondents. 
and yet these patient waiters knew full well that the last comers would have to pass the day without food or fire. We do not deny that there are plenty of egotistic instincts in isolated individuals in our society. We are quite aware of it. But we contend that the very way to revive and nourish these instincts would be to confine such questions as the housing of the people to any board or committee, in fact, to the tender mercies of officialism in any shape or form. Then, indeed, all the evil passions spring up, and it becomes a case of who is the most influential person on the board. The least inequality causes wranglings and recriminations. If the smallest advantage is given to any one, a tremendous hue and cry is raised, and not without reason. But if the people themselves, organized by streets, districts, and parishes, undertake to move the inhabitants of the slums into the half-empty dwellings of the middle class, the trifling inconveniences, the little inequalities, will be easily tided over. Rarely has appeal been made to the good instincts of the masses, only as a last resort, to save the sinking ship in times of revolution. But never has such an appeal been made in vain. The heroism, the self-devotion of the toiler has never failed to respond to it. And thus it will be in the coming revolution. But when all is said and done, some inequalities, some inevitable injustices, will remain. There are individuals in our societies whom no great crisis can lift out of the deep ruts of egoism in which they are sunk. The question, however, is not whether there will be injustices or no, but rather how to limit the number of them. Now, all history, all the experience of the human race, and all social psychology unite in showing that the best and fairest way is to trust the decision to those whom it concerns most nearly. It is they alone who can consider and allow for the hundred and one details which must necessarily be overlooked in any merely official redistribution. Moreover, it is by no means necessary to make straight away an absolute equal redistribution of all the dwellings. There will no doubt be some inconveniences at first, but matters will soon be righted in a society which has adopted expropriation. When the masons and carpenters and all who are concerned in house-building know that their daily bread is secured to them, they will ask nothing better than to work at their old trades a few hours a day. They will adapt the fine houses which absorb the time of a whole staff of servants, and in a few months homes will have sprung up, infinitely healthier and more conveniently arranged than those of today. And to those who are not yet comfortably housed, the anarchist commune will be able to say, Patience, comrades. Palaces fairer and finer than any capitalists built for themselves will spring from the ground of our enfranchised city. They will belong to those who have most need of them. The anarchist commune does not build with an eye to revenues. These monuments erected to its citizens, products of the collective spirit, will serve as models to all humanity. They will be yours. If the people of the revolution expropriate the houses and proclaim free lodgings, the communalizing of houses and the right of each family to a decent dwelling, then the revolution will have assumed a communistic character from the first and started on a course from which it will be by no means easy to turn it. It will have struck a fatal blow at individual property. For the expropriation of dwellings contains in germ the whole social revolution. On the manner of its accomplishment depends the character of all that follows. Either we shall start on a good road leading straight to anarchist communism, or we shall remain sticking in the mud of despotic individualism.
it is easy to see the numerous objections, theoretic on the one hand, practical on the other, with which we are sure to be met. As it will be a question of maintaining iniquity at any price, our opponents will of course protest in the name of justice. Is it not a crying shame, they will exclaim, that the people of Paris should take possession of all these fine houses, while the peasants in the country have only tumble-down huts to live in? But do not let us make a mistake. These enthusiasts for justice forget, by a lapse of memory to which they are subject, the crying shame which they themselves are tacitly defending. They forget that in this same city the worker, with his wife and children, suffocates in a noisome garret, while from his window he sees the rich man's palace. They forget that whole generations perished in crowded slums, starving for air and sunlight, and that to redress this injustice ought to be the first task of the revolution. Do not let these disingenuous protests hold us back. We know that any inequality which may exist between town and country in the early days of the revolution will be transitory and of a nature to right itself from day to day. For the village will not fail to improve its dwellings as soon as the peasant has ceased to be the beast of burden of the farmer, the merchant, the moneylender, and the state. In order to avoid an accidental and transitory inequality, shall we stay our hand from righting an ancient wrong? The so-called practical objections are not very formidable either. We are bidden to consider the hard case of some fellow who, by dint of privation, has contrived to buy a house just large enough to hold his family and we are going to deprive him of his hard-earned happiness to turn him into the street. Certainly not. If his house is only just large enough for his family, by all means, let him stay there. Let him work in his little garden, too. Our boys will not hinder him. Nay, they will lend him a helping hand if need be. But suppose he lets his lodgings. Suppose he has empty rooms in his house. Then the people will make the lodger understand that he need not pay his former landlord any more rent. Stay where you are, but rent-free. No more duns and collectors. Socialism has abolished all that. Or, again, suppose that the landlord has a score of rooms all to himself, and some poor woman lives nearby with five children in one room. In that case, the people would see whether, with some alterations, these empty rooms could not be converted into a suitable home for the poor woman and her five children. Would not that be more just and fair than to leave the mother and her five little ones languishing in a garret while Sir Gorgeous Midas sat at his ease in an empty mansion? Besides, good Sir Gorgeous would probably hasten to do it of his own accord. His wife will be delighted to be freed from half her big, unwieldy house when there is no longer a staff of servants to keep it in order. So, you were going to turn everything upside down, say the defenders of law and order. There will be no end to the evictions and removals. Would it not be better to start fresh by turning everybody out of doors and redistributing the houses by lot? Thus say our critics. But we are firmly persuaded that if no government interferes in the matter, if all the changes are entrusted to those free groups which have sprung up to undertake the work, the evictions and removals will be less numerous than those which take place in one year under the present system, owing to the rapacity of landlords. In the first place, there are in all large towns almost enough empty houses and flats to lodge all the inhabitants of the slums. As to the palaces and suites of fine apartments, many working people would not live in them if they could. One could not keep up such houses without a large staff of servants. 
their occupants would soon find themselves forced to seek less luxurious dwellings. The fine ladies would find that palaces were not well adapted to self-help in the kitchen. Gradually, people would shake down. There would be no need to conduct dives to a garret at the bayonet's point, or install Lazarus in Dives' palace by the help of an armed escort. People would shake down amicably into the available dwellings with the least possible friction and disturbance. Have we not the example of the village communes redistributing fields and disturbing the owners of the allotment so little that one can only praise the intelligence and good sense of the methods they employ? Fewer fields change hands under the management of the Russian commune than where personal property holds sway and is forever carrying its quarrels into courts of law. And are we to believe that the inhabitants of a great European city would be less intelligent and less capable of organization than Russian or Hindu peasants? Moreover, we must not blink at the fact that every revolution means a certain disturbance to everyday life, and those who expect this tremendous lift out of the old grooves to be accomplished without so much as jarring the dishes on their dinner tables will find themselves mistaken. It is true that governments can change without disturbing worthy citizens at dinner, but the crimes of society towards those who have nourished and supported it are not to be redressed by any such political slight of parties. Undoubtedly, there will be a disturbance, but it must not be of pure destruction. It must be minimized. And again, it is impossible to lay too much stress on this maxim. It will be by addressing ourselves to the interested parties, and not to boards and committees, that we shall best succeed in reducing the sum of inconveniences for everybody. The people commit blunder on blunder when they have to choose by ballot some hare-brained candidate who solicits the honor of representing them, and takes upon himself to know all, to do all, and to organize all. But when they take upon themselves to organize what they know, what touches them directly, they do it better than all the talking shops put together. Is not the Paris Commune an instance in point? And the great docker strike? And have we not constant evidence of this fact in every village commune? Chapter 7. Clothing When the houses have become the common heritage of the citizens, and when each man has his daily supply of food, another forward step will have to be taken. The question of clothing will of course demand consideration next. And again, the only possible solution will be to take possession, in the name of the people, of all the shops and warehouses where clothing is sold or stored, and to throw open the doors to all, so that each can take what he needs. The communalization of clothing, the right of each to take what he needs from the communal stores, or to have it made for him at the tailors and outfitters, is a necessary corollary of the communalization of houses and food. Obviously, we shall not need for that to despoil all citizens of their coats, to put all the garments in a heap and draw lots for them, as our critics, with equal wit and ingenuity, suggest. Let him who has a coat keep it still. Nay, if he have ten coats, it is highly improbable that anyone will want to deprive him of them, for most folks would prefer a new coat to one that has already graced the shoulders of some fat bourgeois, and there will be enough new garments and to spare without having recourse to second-hand wardrobes. If we were to take an inventory of all the clothes and stuff for clothing accumulated in the shops and stores of the large towns, we should probably find that in Paris, Lyon, Bordeaux, and Marseille, there was enough to enable the commune to offer garments to all the citizens, of both sexes, 
and if all were not suited at once, the communal outfitters would soon make good these shortcomings. We know how rapidly our great tailoring and dressmaking establishments work nowadays, provided as they are with machinery specially adapted for production on a large scale. But everyone will want a sable-lined coat or a velvet gown, exclaim our adversaries. Frankly, we do not believe it. Every woman does not dote on velvet, nor does every man dream of sable linings. Even now, if we were to ask each woman to choose her gown, we should find some to prefer a simple, practical garment to all the fantastic trimmings a fashionable world affects. Tastes change with the times, and the fashion in vogue at the time of the revolution will certainly make for simplicity. Societies, like individuals, have their hours of cowardice, but also their heroic moments. And though the society of today cuts a very poor figure sunk in the pursuit of narrow personal interests and second-rate ideas, it wears a different air when great crises come. It has its moments of greatness and enthusiasm. Men of generous nature will gain the power which today is in the hands of jobbers. Self-devotion will spring up, and noble deeds beget their like. Even the egotists will be ashamed of hanging back and will be drawn in in spite of themselves to admire, if not to imitate, the generous and brave. The Great Revolution of 1793 abounds in examples of this kind, and it is ever during such times of spiritual revival, as natural to societies as to individuals, that the spring tide of enthusiasm sweeps humanity onwards. We do not wish to exaggerate the part played by such noble passions nor is it upon them that we would found our ideal of society. But we are not asking too much if we expect their aid in tiding over the first and most difficult moments. We cannot hope that our daily life will be continuously inspired by such exalted enthusiasms, but we may expect their aid at the first, and that is all we need. It is just to wash the earth clean, to sweep away the shards and refuse accumulated by centuries of slavery and oppression, that the new anarchist society will have need of this wave of brotherly love. Later on, it can exist without appealing to the spirit of self-sacrifice, because it will have eliminated oppression, and thus created a new world instinct with all the feelings of solidarity. Besides, should the character of the revolution be such as we have sketched here, the free initiative of individuals would find an extensive field of action in thwarting the efforts of the egotists. Groups would spring up in every street and quarter to undertake the charge of the clothing. They would make inventories of all that the city possessed and would find out approximately what were the resources at their disposal. It is more than likely that in the matter of clothing, the citizens would adopt the same principle as in the matter of provisions. That is to say, they would offer freely from the common store everything which was to be found in abundance and dole out whatever was limited in quantity. Not being able to offer to each man a sable-lined coat, and to every woman a velvet gown, society would probably distinguish between the superfluous and the necessary, and, provisionally at least, class sable and velvet among the superfluities of life, ready to let time prove whether what is a luxury today may not become common to all tomorrow. While the necessary clothing would be guaranteed to each inhabitant of the anarchist city, It would be left to private activity to provide for the sick and feeble those things provisionally considered as luxuries, and to procure for the less robust such special articles as would not enter into the daily consumption of ordinary citizens. But, 
it may be urged. This gray uniformity means the end of everything beautiful in life and art. Certainly not, we reply, and we still base our opinion on what already exists. We propose to show presently how an anarchist society could satisfy the most artistic tastes of its citizens without allowing them to amass the fortunes of millionaires.